We're in the book of Judges for the last time this time through. Judges chapter 21. And we're going to look at all 25 verses. Judges 21. Please open your Bibles or navigate on your device. You're going to want to follow along. The topic, after their civil war, the Israelites devise plans for kidnapping brides for the 600 men who are all that's left of the tribe of Benjamin. The title of our message, Benjamin, you may now catch your bride. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, this morning we finish this book. We pray, Lord, that its, its insights and application have strengthened our walk with you. And we pray that we would learn this last lesson, Lord, in a powerful way. That you'd bring it to us by your spirit. We pray it in Jesus' name and all who agreed said, Amen. Toy Story 2, Woody is abducted by an unscrupulous toy store owner, prompting Buzz Lightyear and the gang to head out on a daring rescue mission to save their friend. If you think about it, it's one of a slew of Hollywood feature films, both animated and live action, that take a light-hearted comedic approach to kidnapping. After all, what's not to laugh about when someone is kidnapped? (laughs) Nothing funny about the two mass kidnappings in chapter 21. In the first, the men, women, and children of Jabesh Gilead are mercilessly slaughtered, sparing for abduction only 400 young virgins who had not known a man intimately. And in the second, no one is killed, but 200 more girls are forcibly abducted on their way to a harvest festival in the city of Shiloh. You'd expect this from the Canaanites living in the promised land, but these crimes are carried out by the tribes of Israel. Didn't God's law forbid such atrocities? Well, of course it did, and it does. It wasn't God's law that was the problem. I'm going to argue that the tribes of Israel were suffering from what we routinely call legalism. On account of their being legalistic, they felt both compelled and justified to attack and to abduct. Legalism is one of those words you hear almost immediately upon becoming a Christian. You may not be sure what it means, but you know it's very, very bad. It's worse than you think. We're going to personify legalism and describe it as an enemy that is seeking to attack and abduct us. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, look out for legalism's attack to abduct you. And number two, look in for legalism's attack to abduct you. Let's look out first in verses 1 through 13. This from the internet, bride kidnapping has been practiced around the world and throughout history. Continues to occur in countries in Central Asia the Caucasus region, and parts of Africa, and among peoples as diverse as the Hmong in Southeast Asia and the Romani in Europe. In Uzbekistan, almost one-fifth of all marriages are initiated through the act of kidnapping. As a chaplain a few years ago over in Lemoore, I came out, uh, the call was an individual who needed transportation back to Los Angeles, turned out to be a young girl who some years earlier had been kidnapped from uh, her Romani family into another family to be a wife. And uh, years and years went by, and it was the first opportunity she had to break away from the family, and we were able to get her back down to where she belonged. So uh, it, it's, it's a thing. It happens. It happens all over the place. Now, in our chapter, all the women abducted are taken as brides. It's at this point in the story we remember that in their zeal to defeat Benjamin in a bloody civil war, the other 11 tribes of Israel had murdered women and children, every Benjamite except 600 fighting men who had escaped and were holed up in a place called Ramon. 
They needed to find wives if that tribe was to survive, but there was a further problem. Verse 1. Now the men of Israel had sworn an oath at Mizpah, saying, None of us shall give his daughter to Benjamin as a wife. The Israelites had sworn an oath to not allow their daughters to marry in with the Benjamites. This wasn't necessary. It certainly wasn't part of God's law. It's a rash, unbiblical, uncalled for show of extra spirituality. They said they were going to go against the Benjamites for their crimes. And they were going to go beyond. They'll serve them right. We're not going to give our daughters to them to be married anymore. What they did is a good example of legalism in action. They impose a man-made law upon themselves and others. And then they elevate its outward observance to the status of God's law, never once thinking that they could renege on it or that it could be nullified. Now let's pause and try to get a handle on what we mean by legalism. A quick but accurate definition would go like this. In Christianity, legalism is the excessive improper use of God's law and the imposing of man-made laws as equally binding. Uh, One commentator expanded on that, saying the following, The word legalism does not occur in the Bible. It's a term Christians use to describe a doctrinal position emphasizing a system of rules and regulations for achieving both salvation and spiritual growth. Legalists believe in and demand a strict, literal adherence to rules and regulations. One more quote that describes how legalism actually plays out in our day-to-day walk with the Lord. Uh, Legalism can take three different forms. Number one, the first, where a person attempts to keep the law in order to attain salvation. Number two, the second, where a person keeps the law in order to maintain salvation. Number three, the third, when a Christian judges other Christians for not keeping certain codes of conduct that he thinks need to be observed. Uh, So, for example, the folks who insist you must be water baptized in order to be saved or that you must keep the Sabbath, those are an example of the first form of legalism. You can't even be saved unless you do certain things. Uh, Second, I would say those who insist that you must practice confession and weekly partake of communion, they're practicing the second form of legalism by thinking that salvation must be maintained by your works. In other words... You, you can get saved, but you can't stay saved unless you do certain things on a regular basis. Among us Protestants, the third form of legalism is probably the most prevalent, where we think our personal lists of do's and don'ts make us more spiritual than others. And I wouldn't accuse you of doing this, but I'm guilty sometimes of thinking that something I do or don't do actually makes me more spiritual than you. And then I realize that no spiritual person would think that, and then I'm in trouble. And I have to repent before I do anything else. So, uh, But I, you see this in uh, Christianity. I don't want to pick on anybody, but there are extreme groups that get into, for example, dress codes. And uh, the length of hair, men's hair, women's hair, whether hair can ever be down, head coverings, uh, all kinds of things. and And they... Uh, not only keep that, I don't mind if people have their own dress code, but then they project that onto others and uh, where you would not be welcome in their group uh, dressed the way you are as a normal Calvary Chapel person. Of course, we wouldn't be welcome in a lot of churches dressed the way we are. <laughs> dress codes around here are so fun. If I, go to, if I get ready for a funeral and it's a hot, you know, it's hot. We had some funerals and memorial services outdoors this summer. Hot, hot, hot. 
And so I'm wearing just my white shirt and a tie. And Pam would say, honey, you're going to go like that? You're not dressed up enough. And I said, honey, I'm dressed 100% more than anybody else that's going to be at this funeral. I'll tell you right now, the pallbearers are going to wear collared polo shirts. And that's going to be a step up for them. And so, and, and it's true around here, people just don't get dressed up. In fact, you think you're more spiritual because you don't get dressed up. And uh, so you need to repent just as well. <laughs> a lot of repenting going on. Getting back to our story in Judges, the Israelites imposed a man-made law upon themselves and others, and then they elevated its outward observance to the status of God's law. Hey, we made a vow, concrete, set in stone, we can't go back on it. Now that Benjamin had been subdued, the vow of the other tribes would make it impossible for them to recover. There were no Benjamite women. The vow all but guaranteed Benjamin's extinction. Then the people came to the house of God and remained there before God till evening. They lifted up their voices and wept bitterly. And they said, Oh, Lord God of Israel, why has this come to pass in Israel? That today there should be one tribe missing in Israel. Well, why it had come to pass was because of their letting their mission to punish the wicked men of Gibeah get out of control. They went down. There was a bunch of sex criminals down in Gibeah that had raped a concubine all night. They needed to be punished. Benjamites said, hey, these guys are in our territory, so we're going to defend them. And it led to a civil conflict between the tribes of Israel and Benjamin. Once the Israelites had defeated the Benjamites at Gibeah, they didn't let it go. They started going through all of Benjamin's territory, and they killed everybody. And they burned everything in an overkill. And now they're sitting saying, oh, Lord, what happened? And this is a, all of these things typical of the legalist. They never blame themselves. It's always God's fault. Because they're keeping the law. Even though it's not the law, it's their own man-made vow. Verse 4. So it was on the next morning that the people rose early, built an altar there, and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. Uh, one thing to note about legalists, they are outwardly spiritual. If you had come upon this scene as a traveler, you'd have thought Israel totally committed to following their God. You'd get no idea that they had brought all this upon themselves and that they needed to repent rather than uh, go through the outward motions of worship. Verse 5, the children of Israel said, Who is there among all the tribes of Israel who did not come up with the assembly of the Lord? For they had made a great oath concerning anyone who had not come up to the Lord at Mizpah, saying, He shall surely be put to death. Okay, these guys loved oaths. They, they couldn't, you couldn't swing a cat without getting an oath out of these guys. They remembered one another, uh, or excuse me, they remembered another oath that we just now are hearing about. They said, hey, remember we also said that anybody that doesn't fight with us is going to be cursed. Now, the command regulating the taking of vows is in Numbers chapter 30, it's verse 3. We read this. When a man vows a vow unto the Lord or swears an oath to bind his soul with a bond, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Now, that seems pretty binding, but really how binding were foolish oaths? Well, I consulted a Jewish website regarding the possibility of nullifying vows. Here's what they say. The rabbis eventually ruled that vows could be nullified by a sage. The procedures for the sage to ask the man who made the vow whether he would have made it had he known that circumstances would arise which would have prevented him from keeping the vow. If the sage ascertains that the man had known that the vow would cause him embarrassment, he would not have made it. 
The vow is then treated as one made in error unwittingly, and the sage can declare it to be null and void. Now, I don't know when the rabbis came to that, uh, uh, but I maintain that these guys ought to have just nullified their vow. Even if they thought it would bring harm to them, it's more spiritual than to go out and kill more people. Their vow was equal to God's law, however, in their mind. Being legalists, that thought never enter their minds. And so they're going to actually make matters worse. Verse 6. Children of Israel grieved for Benjamin, their brother, and said, One tribe is cut off from Israel today. What shall we do for wives, for those who remain, seeing we have sworn by the Lord that we will not give them our daughters as wives? And they said, What one is there from the tribes of Israel who did not come up to Mizpah to the Lord? And in fact, no one had come to the camp from Jabesh Gilead to the assembly. For when the people were counted, indeed not one of the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead was there. No reason is given for the absence of men from Jabesh Gilead. For all they knew, it could have been an oversight. Maybe, I mean, seriously. They didn't have texting in those days, no mass communication. Maybe they just didn't get the message or they didn't get it on time. But fueled by a legalistic spirit, the men of Israel were intent on keeping their rash vows above all else. And so verse 10, so the congregation sent out there 12,000 of their most valiant men and commanded them saying, go and strike the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead with the edge of the sword, including women and children. And this is the thing you shall do. You shall utterly destroy every male and every woman who has known a man intimately. And so you see how their legalism keeps making things worse. Instead of repenting of their initial vow, they think of another vow they made more foolish and rash than the first. Not only did they commit further atrocities, they felt justified in doing them. We might describe them as keeping to the letter of the law while ignoring the spirit of the law. Even if the men of Jabesh Gilead had outright refused to join in the war against the Benjamites, the appropriate punishment wasn't mass murder. Okay, you guys didn't come to help us, so we're going to murder you. And not only your fighting men, all of you. Well, not all of them, because they're going to use the vow as an excuse to solve their bride problem. So they found, verse 12, among the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead, 400 young virgins who had not known a man intimately, and they brought them to the camp at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan. Their vow, as recorded in verse 5, seemed to be confined to fighting men who refused to join them against the Benjamites. They altered it to include everyone except young virgins whom they needed to resolve the problem created by their other vow. Legalists are always changing the rules to fit their situation. Sabbath keeping is a good example. We call people who try to observe the Sabbath, Sabbatarians. And each Sabbatarian has his or her own list of what constitutes work on the Sabbath. Their list always benefits them while projecting restraints on others. It's all subjective. It's all man-made. It is custom-tailored to benefit the person keeping it. When Jean had a paper route, we had a family, an Adventist family, Sabbatarians on 11th Avenue, whom you could not collect from on Saturday because they considered paying for the newspaper to their poor little paper boy who was trembling and weeping outside their door. (laughs) They considered that work. I'll tell you what's work. It's having a paper route and having people not pay you. But anyway... So they, they, one time, you know, the first time we tried to collect, they came to the door 
And I remember Gino, he's 11 or 12 years old, come and I said, well, what happened? They go, they say they can't do any work on the Sabbath. Well, the dad was out there mowing his lawn. <laughs> so that's not work, but paying for the, uh, the, the Hanford Sentinel, that was working. So it's an extreme example. It's a silly example, but this is the way Sabbatarianism works. God said in the Old Testament, even if you wanted to keep the Sabbath, there's really no, no rules. Just It's a day of rest. And then the rabbis come along and say, oh, what does that mean? And they have all these crazy rules and regulations that always benefit themselves. And so uh, custom tailored to benefit the person keeping it. It's legalism. Verse 13, then the whole congregation sent word to the children of Benjamin who were at the Rock of Ramon, and they announced peace to them. Problem solved. They murdered their fellow Israelites, including non-combatants, women and children, in order to kidnap brides for the 600 Benjamites. People of Jabesh Gilead found out the hard way that legalism is a powerful enemy. I said we are to look out for legalism's attack to abduct us. As believers who are saved by grace through faith and who continue to walk with Jesus by faith in the power of the Spirit, we're surrounded by legalism and legalists. We need to look out for them. In some cases, it can be a life and death matter. Christians are right now being forced to convert to Islam or to die. They have to make that choice. That's a, an extreme form of uh, Islamic legalism. You're going to follow our laws or we're going to kill you. The assault upon us in the West is not physical so much as it is spiritual. There's a constant pressure on us to conform to a set of man-made rules, thinking these will help us to achieve or maintain our salvation. Now the truth is we are to keep God's law, but not by strict mechanical obedience. One pastor said, the legalist focus is only on obeying bare rules, destroying the broader context of God's love and redemption in which he gave his law in the first place. The way to defend against legalism's attack is to, uh, to abduct you is to hold as foundational what Jesus said was the greatest commandment. So the legalist comes along and they say, Here's some commands that you must keep in order to get saved or stay saved, and it makes you more spiritual. And so if you want to talk commandments, what was the greatest commandment? Well, Jesus said it was that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So if you are pursuing that kind of personal, passionate relationship with Jesus... You'll be immune from the onslaught of legalists and their various legalisms. You'll act in love and you will find yourself keeping God's law as a byproduct. Maybe you're not a Christian here this morning. That's possible. I'm here to tell you that you don't become one by obeying man-made rules and rituals that are seemingly based on the Bible. There's nothing you can do to be saved in terms of your works. Your very best efforts will always fall short. You can't work your way to heaven. You can't get there by deeds. Jesus offers you salvation as a free gift of God's grace. What do you normally do when somebody gives you a gift? You receive it. You open it. You enjoy it. And that's why we say salvation is by grace through faith. You simply believe in Jesus. It's a gift that you must receive and accept. And once you do, you can be saved. And so don't think that you have to go out and figure out how to dress or what sacraments to keep or clean up your life or anything like that. The Lord takes you just the way you are, dressed in filthy rags, spiritually speaking, 
He takes those upon himself on the cross and he offers you what he calls a robe of righteousness that equips you for heaven. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, plus nothing. Now, this is serious because in the New Testament we see the Apostle Paul oftentimes hounded by legalists. He would come into a city, preach the gospel in a synagogue, get kicked out of the synagogue, preach the gospel to Gentiles. Gentiles would get saved, genuinely saved, born again, filled with the Spirit, establish a church. Paul would leave. Following him would be these guys called Judaizers. And they would say, hey, you guys are off to a great start. You're almost saved. Paul didn't tell you that you also need to be circumcised like Jews and you need to keep certain dietary regulations like Jews and keep certain feast days like the Jews. Then you'll be really saved. And we have our version of this in Christian circles as well. And so, but none of those things save you. If someone tells you that you can be saved in any other way than by faith in Jesus Christ, that's legalism. And we should be excited about that because... Though it's not easy to believe, that's all that you need to do to have eternal life. Now, we need to look in for legalism's attack to abduct you as well. There's another form of legalism that attacks us, one we haven't yet mentioned. It is trying to find all sorts of creative ways to get around God's law. This isn't making our own law. It's actually looking at the word of God and saying, I know what it's saying, but maybe there's a workaround. Maybe I don't have to obey that. The New Testament era Pharisees were excellent practitioners of this. Once they thought they could get away from honoring their elderly parents by taking the support they should offer them and dedicating it to God instead. And so under the law, you were obligated to take care of your parents as they got older. I remind Gene of this every day. (laughs) The Pharisees knew this was true, but they said, but if we take the money that we were going to help our parents with and dedicate it to God, that's our God account, well, then that trumps our need to spend it on our parents, and then we'll just hang on to it in our God account until they die, and then we'll think, oh, well, they're dead now. And so that money reverts to us. And so this was a workaround, uh, a loophole, they thought. I'd throw out as a modern example the many creative arguments believers use to justify getting involved romantically with non-believers and subsequently marrying them. Young ladies especially seem to fall for this all the time. Is your boyfriend, is your fiancé a Christian? No, but he knows the Bible better than most Christians. Wow. Okay. And he's going to go to hell and recite it? I don't understand what that means. No, but he's, he's a lot better person than most of the Christian men I know who, you know, treated me like, you know, terribly, but he treats me nice. Okay. So what does that have to do with the price of tea in China? You know, I mean, and so there's these workarounds that we kind of convince ourselves that I know that I'm not supposed to be unequally yoked together with a non-believer, but I can't find any believer that treats me right who knows as much about the Bible as this non-believer I'm not supposed to marry, so I'm good. And it sounds funny, but it becomes tragic later on uh, when people find out that it's not a good idea to be unequally yoked together with non-believers. When I say to look in for legalism, I mean to emphasize that we are prone to it by nature. It's not just all assaulting us from without. Our very nature is drawn to legalism so that we can kind of relax. I, sometimes if I, if I had 10 things that I could do and know that I was completely right with God, I would just, oh man, I'd sigh in relief and think I'm coasting now on my way to heaven because I've got all those 
things checked off. As our story continues, we'll see an example of this kind of legalism. If you were paying attention and you're really smart and did the math, you realize that they were still 200 brides short to supply 600 Benjamites. I got that from 600 minus 400 equals 200. High level math for me. So here comes their legalistic solution. Verse 14. So Benjamin came back at that time and they gave them the women whom they had saved alive of the women of Jabesh Gilead. And yet they had not found enough for them. And the people grieved for Benjamin because the Lord had made a void in the tribes of Israel. All right, we have to stop and talk about that last sentence, even though I don't want to because it's off subject, but it's important. The writer who we believe was Samuel seems to blame the Lord by saying it was the Lord who made this void. The ISV translates these words, the Lord had broken Benjamin. Samuel, who's the author here, might have simply meant that it was a bummer that Benjamin had needed to be punished at all. So think of it this way. If you're a parent, do you like disciplining your kids? I mean, do you wake up in the morning and think, man, I can't wait to get to that first tantrum. I am so looking forward to disciplining my kids today instead of doing what needs to be done. Well, no, of course not. And then you like it even less when they refuse to yield and your discipline gets more severe. Have you ever had those days with your kids where 10 minutes worth of discipline turned into an entire day of just practically pulling out your hair because you knew you couldn't lose this battle? This was the key battle in the life of your child. And, and I'm not saying I'm not talking about any kind of child abuse or anything. I'm talking about just loving, corrective discipline. Nobody likes that. So I think what Samuel is saying is that it's just, it just was a bummer that Benjamin needed to be disciplined in the first place. Now, the Israelites, for their part, they went on to discipline the Benjamites too much. They're like these crazy people you read about who say, well, the Bible told me to do that or God told me to do that. No, the Bible didn't tell you to punch your kid in the face and make him bleed or to starve him or to tie him up to a chair or to lock him in a closet. That's abuse. That's on you. And so that's the kind of situation here. God says, hey, these men need to be disciplined. It's a bummer that it has to happen. And then the Israelites come and say, oh, we'll do it and we'll take it too far. And so that's, I think, what's being said here. Not that God was the orchestrator of all these events and was the one who wanted them to kill women and children. That's certainly not true. And so verse 16, then the elders of the congregation said, what shall we do for wives for those who remain since the women of Benjamin have been destroyed? In other words, we murdered them. And they said, there must be an inheritance for the survivors of Benjamin that a tribe may not be destroyed from Israel. However, we cannot give them wives from our daughters For the children of Israel have sworn an oath saying, Cursed be the one who gives a wife to Benjamin. Then they said, In fact, there is a yearly feast of the Lord in Shiloh, which is north of Bethel, on the east side of the highway that goes up from Bethel to Shechem and south of Labona. Therefore they instructed the children of Benjamin saying, Go lie in wait in the vineyards. Watch, and just when the daughters of Shiloh come out to perform their dances, come out from the vineyards and every man catch a wife for himself from the daughters of Shiloh, Then go to the land of Benjamin. In other words, kidnap them. Then it shall be when their fathers or their brothers come to us to complain that we will say to them, be kind to them for our sakes because we did not take a wife for any of them in the war. For it is not as though you have given the women to them at this time. You're not guilty of any oath. So in other words, we can't give our women to the Benjamites because we took an oath. But if we look the other way and they get kidnapped... 
technicality. I'm clean. My oath stands. And all we did was sexually assault some ladies and kidnap them for Benjamites. Too bad it's all completely immoral. How can kidnapping brides be okay? It can to the legalist looking for a technicality. Remember I said at the beginning, legalism is really, really bad. It's far worse than you think because it keeps snowballing into something greater and greater. Then President Bill Clinton famously said of Monica Lewinsky, I did not have sexual relations with that woman. For her part, in an interview with Barbara Walters, Miss Lewinsky described her activities with the president as, quote, fooling around. Now, we found out to the dishonor of the Oval Office that they were, in fact, having what any Christian would consider sexual relations. They redefined the term and they used it as a technicality to argue that what they were doing wasn't sex. Their denials have become a loophole that even Christians use to this day to say that certain sexual behaviors aren't really sexual relations. So, therefore, it's okay for believers to engage in them prior to marriage. It was a problem when it happened, and it's still a problem today. The point is this. Don't be looking for loopholes or workarounds. Don't redefine things that are clear in Scripture. That is a sinister, subversive form of legalism. Verse 23, And the children of Benjamin did so. They took enough wives for their number from those who danced, from they caught. And then they went and returned to their inheritance, and they rebuilt the cities and dwelt in them. They all lived happily ever after. All of this trouble began when perverted men in Gibeah had sexually assaulted a Levite's concubine. Now it was ending with bride kidnapping, which is in fact a sexual assault. It is a sex crime. If if you're in doubt about that, kidnapping a woman to marry her and forcing her to marry you is a sex crime. There's nothing exciting about it. This wasn't the annual catch a bride festival. And so they start, they end up exactly where they start, only they're justified in their own mind for doing something at least as bad as what they started off hating. So the children of Israel departed from there at that time, every man to his tribe and family. They went out from there, every man to his inheritance. I'm guessing they felt pretty good about themselves. Everything seemed to have worked out just fine. Legalism is like that. It seems to work out externally on paper. But at what cost? In our story, the cost was immense. Tens of thousands were murdered. Hundreds were kidnapped. Those left alive were deceived into thinking they were right with their God, having kept their stupid oaths. They were therefore self-righteous. And no one goes to heaven by self-righteousness. Meaning they too were their own casualties of legalism. They were so legalistic that they were going to go to hell. Think of all the loopholes that we find in the civil laws of our nation or in the tax codes. Do you feel bad if you find a loophole that saves you money? I'm guessing not. And you know what? I don't. Hey, it's the law. And if it's legal and it's not immoral, I don't have to lie about it. I don't want to pay. Do you want to pay more taxes? If you want to pay more taxes, I tell you where you can give some other money too. Nobody wants to pay more taxes. And so there are loopholes. Normally they, you know, they benefit the rich and all of this kind of thing. But it, it's legal. We try and stop them and all. Now, however, I am saying unequivocally that it is wrong to look for loopholes in your walk with the Lord. See, we have a natural tendency 
to try to get off on a technicality, to look for the loophole. What's the workaround? Here's what God says. I don't think I can do that or I want to do that. So how, maybe I can redefine the word. If this word means something else, then it's clear, obvious meaning in context. Then I don't have to do what the Lord tells me to do. And, and this is the basis for a lot of liberal Christianity. And even among you know, evangelicals who just are not willing to submit to the word. I mentioned the greatest commandment earlier is our protection from legalism. We might summarize it by asking ourselves in every situation, what does God's love and loving God require of me? Verse 25, then in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The era of the kings would come, would start off badly with Saul, chosen by the people based on his external qualifications. It would continue with David, who was God's choice based on the heart. One day, the greater son of David, Jesus, will sit as king over the millennial earth and on into eternity. Let's take one last look at legalism. This chapter gives us two pictures that warn us that legalism is on the attack. First, we saw the citizens of Jabesh Gilead living peacefully in the promised land. For whatever reason, they did not join with their brothers against Benjamin. They didn't make any foolish, rash vows. But legalism came and attacked them. And in their case, it destroyed them. Legalism will always attack you from without while you are at peace with the Lord, enjoying your relationship with Him. Legalists cannot stand your freedom in Jesus and they want you to join them or be destroyed. So if I make some man-made rule, this makes me more spiritual or maintains my salvation. And you say, I'm a Christian and I'm not obeying that then there's a problem. There's a big divide. Somebody is wrong, and it's the legalist, and so they want to get you to conform somehow to what they believe rather than take a deeper look at their own vows. Second, the young ladies were on their way to rejoice when men assaulted them. The men were lying in wait within their own territory, as it were. Just so you and I have a bent lying within us to be taken captive by legalism, It will lead to self-righteousness and it will rob you of joy. These gals never got to the dance. They were robbed of their joy because of something that was in their midst. And so uh, remember, it's not just coming from outside. It's It's not just weird people coming to you. You and I want to be legalists. It's something that's in our nature uh, and we need to fight it. It's possible that each of us has an area in our lives right now in which we're believing or behaving legalistically. Is there something you do or do not do that you believe makes you more spiritual than others? Do you ever look at somebody and maybe judge them because of their behavior and think, well, I'm I'm a little bit more spiritual than that? It's usually something in a so-called gray area, not directly commanded or condemned by the Bible. And it's always fun to me to see some of these things like dress codes and the lengths to some, some people will go to to try and prove that their dress code is actually in the Bible. Taking stuff out of context, making stuff up, ignoring certain things in order to do that. And, and so, uh, you know, we have these things that, make, that we believe make us more spiritual. You might think your freedom to participate in something makes you more mature than others. You might think your avoidance of something makes you more mature than others. Either way, the truth is you're under attack by legalism. And if you believe either way makes you more spiritual, then you've already been taken captive. You've already given into it. And you just need to 
repent, spend time with the Lord, and break free by asking, what does God's love and loving God require of me? Do that, and you will fulfill the law.